Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, I'm going to be talking for a little while about uh, taking this home. And uh, we'll have some time for uh, questions. And uh, the others will say a few words as well. First, I just want to check in and see uh, how you're doing. Are you surviving? Uh, How many people uh, was that a little bumpy for? Uh, going through transition. Yeah. Okay. And how many people loved <laughs> starting to talk again and uh, come back into the world? Okay. <clears throat> I see some of the same hands that rose in the So, uh, yeah, and that's a little bit uh, <laughs> what it'll be like, too. Both maybe... Uh, little bumpy and also some uh, some really lovely aspects to it <clears throat> so I, I really want to underscore what we said yesterday be really gentle with yourself in uh, these next few days as long as you've sat um, really uh, be sensitive to your energies and if you're finding yourself getting a little bit overstimulated Um, then uh, just nourish yourself, take care of yourself, whether it's sitting quietly or going for walks or um, listening to some really nice music or, you know, soaking in a hot bath or whatever. Really take good care of yourself these next few days and then um, continue for the rest of your life. Uh, It's a good instruction. But particularly be sensitive these, uh, to your own sensitivity. Um, so I want to first read to you a, uh, a contemporary prayer that, uh, that I first heard from my buddy Howie Cohn that's since made it to uh, greeting card status. I don't know if it was because he's promoted it, but somehow I saw it at a greeting card store. Oh, there it is. Dear God, so far today, I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And then I'm probably going to need all the help I can get. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) This is not easy. It's not easy living in the world. But when you come from as, as good a heart and sincerity and with the intention to be as awake and conscious as you can, that makes all the difference in the world. So, um, really to cut yourself some slack and keep on coming back to your sincere 
intention, as Guy mentioned in, in the talk the other, the other night. Your sincere intention, as the Dalai Lama said, your sincere intention is your greatest protection. Keep coming back to that. And it's not about getting to any one magical moment where everything's come together and now it's clear sailing for the rest of your life. It's about really being here for the ups and downs of life, for the joys, for the sorrows. They're all part of the fabric of life. And just learning to navigate that ride gracefully. That's all. You can't control what your ride is like. Maybe to some extent you can do as much as you can, certainly with with inclining the mind towards consciousness and and uh, and kindness. But what the circumstances are are not in our control. What we do have some control is, or some practice is, how we meet and greet our life. So I wanted to share with you a, a few things that I have found helpful to keep in mind, particularly around the metta practice. As you might guess, uh, one of the most important things. This is one of uh, a list of the Buddha's supports for practice uh, besides the meditation. And the the number one list on that uh, number one item on that list of five things is um, good friends, good spiritual friends. As he said, not half of the holy life, the whole of the holy life that we can remind each other and surrounding yourself with people who have shared values and who really, um, if you want to cultivate loving kindness, the proximate cause, one proximate cause, is being around loving and kind people as much as you can. And you kind of remind each other. Um, Be nice if we could just surround ourselves with loving and kind people, but that's not quite how it works, but the stronger your connection to that in your own heart, the more you become an environment that reminds others as well. But besides that, to surround yourself with like-minded friends, people who appreciate growing in that way and who want to wake up is the most, um, probably the most helpful support for you continuing this outside. And whether it's being around people or listening to lots of good Dharma talks that remind you or reading good books, whatever support you can get, even just having one good friend can be enough. So that's the first. Second is... um, a life of integrity, as Kamala so beautifully spoke about yesterday, about those, the pillars of, of the Dharma, dana, sila, bhavana, uh, a heart of generosity, a life of integrity where you, where you can feel whole and aligned inside is a tremendous support for well-being. 
And in that integrity also, particularly with regard to our speech, that's the third in the list, to really be wise in your speech to say what's truthful, what's useful in a kind way. This is where the metta practice comes in. Whatever is said, if you can say it in a way that somebody can hear it, it makes all the difference in the world. And what really is a key determining factor is getting in touch with your intention. Why are you saying what you're saying? Is it to be right? Is it to be impressive? Is it to get your own way? Or is it to have greater communication because you really value the relationship? And so if you can get in touch with that wiser intention and let the words come from that place of kindness and respect, then they can more easily be heard. So the fourth is uh, something that I wanted to take a little bit of of time on. The fourth is, in that list, is um, the wise effort, what is cultivating wise effort, which in the, the actual definition of wise effort, it's guarding against unwholesome states and overcoming them when they, arri- when they arise, and developing wholesome states and maintaining and increasing them when they arise. A lot of the practice emphasizes about dealing with the unwholesome states. You know, when there's anger, you know, you might want to hold it with some kindness, or when there's uh, wanting, you know, to be mindful and all of those. And it's, it's a very crucial part of the practice to learn how to deal with the unwholesome states, as we do here on retreats, much of the time focusing on that. But as some of the talks have been about, and guys talk about happiness, and and uh, um, Sally's talk about uh, about joy, uh, and and as as you've heard, it's something that I find very important in my own practice, and that I like to share with others. Sometimes there's not as much emphasis on cultivating wholesome states and even maintaining and increasing them when they arise. This is a skillful thing to do. But you don't maintain them and increase them by grasping at them and saying, oh, cool, here they are, how do I keep it here? All that does, it turns you into another unwholesome state. So how to maintain, how to cultivate wholesome states and maintain and increase them when they arise. Particularly with regard to the metta practice, one basic attitude that whether you've consciously or unconsciously been practicing is looking for what's good. As you look in your own own being and metta for self, you were hopefully reflecting on some good qualities that you have, so you feel deserving of it. Or the same with whatever category, it's easy for the benef- uh, benefactor or for the dear friend. For the difficult person, also, we look for what's good 
so we can tune into that goodness and let the metta come from that place. I really encourage you as as a key support to the metta practice, keep looking for the good. Looking for it inside and looking for it outside. The more you look for it, the more you will find it. And as I say in, in uh, almost every re- retreat, the power of looking for the good is not only that you'll see it, but you will actually activate it. If somebody is looking at you and you sense that they're, they're judging you and they're seeing all your flaws, how does that feel? Crummy, doesn't it? Flawed, small. If somebody is looking at you, they might know all your flaws, but they're just looking and seeing how beautiful you are. How do you feel? Beautiful, don't you? It's just kind of, it's a mysterious thing that it just draws it right out by what you look for. Not to deny the other stuff, not to pretend, oh, this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always safe wherever I am, although the metta is a protection. But the more you look for it, the more you will bring it out. Now, one way to actually extend this beyond just looking is letting in all the good that comes your way. This is a really powerful practice that I've been doing actually just in the last year or so, year, year and a half. That when anybody smiles at you, says hi and really means it, or opens a door, or there's any kind of goodwill coming your way, don't miss it. Not only on the level of, oh, they're being nice to me, to really let it in and see that they, this is the practice that I've been doing, that they are an agent of life letting you know that you're loved. It's like life is saying, here's a little good energy to you. Don't put up your barriers or don't be so distracted that that you miss it. It's just life saying, oh, you're worthy of some kindness. Let it in. Take it in. Not only to take it in, but actually hang out with it. If you want to really, if this is a, a place that's not so familiar to you, the more you practice taking it in and really hanging out with it, the more you will start getting it activated and believing that you're actually deserving of, of it. And once you start having your radar out for it, you will find it everywhere. Life is wanting to remind you that you're worthy of kindness and, and love. On a neuroscience level, this is one of the things, this is, that's the basic principle in that Awakening Joy course. It's tuning into the good and also when there is a wholesome state to actually hang out with it because 
we can get distracted and just look for what's wrong. As maybe you've heard, you know, there's this almond-shaped cluster of neurons called the amygdala uh, in, in our brain. Amygdalae, there's actually two little almond-shaped clusters. And they scan the horizon for what's wrong. That's what keeps us alive. But we can have very overactive amygdalae. As uh, our, f- our friend Rick Hansen says, the, the, the brain is like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive experiences. So it takes some practice to counteract that and it gets activated, particularly under stress, where we, don't, where we just see what's wrong. If you take in or really let yourself connect with the wholesome states whether it's coming out of you or coming towards you, you actually deepen the groove, the, the, the grooves in your, in your brain, those neural pathways. And Rick has a, uh, a suggested formula when you're feeling a state of well-being to let it sink in for about 30 seconds. He says, if you do that six times in a day, That's three minutes. I know it's a lot. (laughs) If you do that six times in a day for a two-week period, you will notice a dramatic shift in your well-being. Not only because you're deepening the, the pathways, but you're starting to get used to be on the lookout for the good. So I just offer that as something you might try. As an example to see how you can do this. Just a little, a little exercise that points to another aspect of bringing this practice out, uh, which is gratitude, okay? Just for a moment, uh, we are so incredibly blessed in this room. Whatever is going on in your life, something's going right for you to be spending a week practicing loving kindness for yourself and others, okay? Just close your eyes for a moment, and think of some blessing in your life, someone that you're grateful for or something that you're grateful to life for. And have an image, have a picture in your mind of that blessing, that person or that circumstance. And as you're connecting with it, or with him or her or it, Just a very simple, sincere thank you from the heart. Thank you. And now let your awareness just relax in that feeling. Take a breath. One more. Think of another blessing in your life, someone or something. Have an image, a very simple thank you from the heart, thank you. Relax into it, let it register. You can open your eyes. Okay, so that's two to start with. You got four more (laughs) to go for the day. 
let yourself be nourished by all the goodness inside. And as I do in, the, in, uh, in that course, any kind of wholesome state, whether it's feeling of kindness towards yourself, kindness towards others, a feeling of expressing your caring, a feeling of, of integrity, lots of different wholesome states, get used to tuning in and hanging out with it. That's what deepens it. Another aspect of that, particularly around gratitude and metta, when you are feeling appreciative towards somebody, let them know. Don't keep it to yourself. You know, uh, as long as it's an appropriate situation, you know, and just let them know, gee, I really appreciate that about you. I really respect that in you, or you did a great job. You will have a deeper connection. They will remember it, as just came across a study that if people are given the option, the, the choice between in their work, salary or acknowledgement, acknowledgement is actually higher. We crave appreciation and you can give it to others. It makes a huge difference on both ends. What else did I want to say here? As far as the metta with regard to the people and, and things that we love, okay? As we've talked about, the difference between loving kindness and attachment is the difference between heaven and hell. Okay? And it's so close, the very same person that we feel deep love for in a moment can turn into something painful. It doesn't take much, that's the thing. It's so fragile. Just try this. So I did this in one group, one of my small groups. Just try this to see the difference and maybe you can kind of extend it as you go out. Close your eyes once again and think of somebody who you really have a lot of love for and you just want to see them happy and have an image of them and just as you've been doing, wish them a few thoughts of kindness. May you really be happy. May you see all the goodness in you and share your love well. Now notice how that feels in your body, in your mind. And now for a moment, just turn the lens and get in touch with how it feels when you want something from them. When you don't want them to disappoint you. When you want some attention or affection or whatever. And you really want it. As you remember what that's like, Feel how it feels in your body. Okay, I won't leave you here. Take a breath. And now once again, turn the lens 
to just wishing them well. See them smiling, connect with their goodness, and just get in touch with how much you love to see them happy. May you be happy. May you just feel all the good inside of you and share it. See them smiling, beaming back at you, appreciating that. And notice how that feels. Okay, you can open your eyes. Notice any difference? And it's just, just a little change of channel that makes all the difference in the world. And the, the interesting thing, of course, is when you extend that, what energy comes back to you? Probably a whole lot more than, have you disappointed me lately? You know, <laughs> It's like, hey, here it is. So just to go from letting go of your agenda to just sharing love and then uh, expressing your caring in that way. Finally, one last thing as you go out into the world, particularly, you know, you probably had a whole lot of messages in your mind about how things, you know, how things were and, you know, am I doing it right? Oh, now it feels so good. Get to know and discern between those different voices because when the heart is open and there's love there, then the messages that come through will be a whole lot more connected. If you're hearing with a finger wag, you better not blow it, you better do this, or what happens if you don't, and uh uh-oh, trouble down the road, you can hear and feel the contraction in your mind and in your heart. This is not the voice of wisdom. This is the voice of fear. But when you are connected and when there's enough space, you hear that voice that says, this feels right, or this doesn't feel right. That's connected, your body relaxes, your mind is more at ease, there's more of an alignment, there's more of a connection. It's supportive, it's coming from that place of love and wisdom. So my my um, instruction is when I hear that voice of fear, I take it out of the driver's seat. I put it in the passenger seat in my mind. I put a seatbelt around it. I put a helmet around it just to make sure that it feels safe and protected and say, yes, we honor you. I want to respect you, but you don't get the keys to the car. Thank you. You just... Wait until that wisdom voice comes in. You want to respect, you, you want to learn to love every part of yourself inside, but don't let the voice of fear run you. The voice of wisdom and love is right inside of you. When you hear somebody say something very wise, don't get fooled into thinking, oh, they're so wise, I wish I could be that wise. It's touching a place inside of you that says, yeah, right on. That's where the wisdom is. And this whole process is more and more getting in touch and trusting the wisdom right inside of you. And the metta practice is a tremendous support for that. So I think I'll stop here.
Oh, wait, there was one more thing I wanted to do. I didn't bring my guitar, but I meant to bring it from, from below. But I just want to do, I didn't just check this out with my colleagues, so I hope they can flow with it. Just <laughs> the ultimate meta song, what I'd like you to practice and sing with me, a cappella, <laughs> this little light of mine, okay? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Okay, ready? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Come on. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. To everyone I meet, to everyone I meet, I'm going to let it shine. Let your light shine. To everyone I meet, I'm going to let it shine. To everyone I meet, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Okay, last time, this little light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, let your light shine. I'm going to let it shine. Feel how good it is. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. 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 One last time. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. So, there might be some questions or anything that you want to ask any of any of us before we go. Where? Yes. Oh yes, I didn't get to the fifth one. All right, there's good friends, Sila, uh, wise speech wise effort, cultivating the wholesome and uh, uh, guarding against the unwholesome. The fifth one is reflecting on impermanence. No matter where you are, whatever is going to happen, it's going to change. Keep reflecting on impermanence. When the lows come, remember they're not going to be here forever. When the highs come, remember they're not going to be here forever. Enjoy them, appreciate them, let go gracefully keep going through the ride. So anybody uh, wanna say any comments? I just wanted to say, because it's a question a number of you have already asked me in interviews, so I'm sure there's many of you con uh, wondering about this, and that's actually keeping up a formal or a daily metta practice. And the question always is, you know, could I, should I do that? Can I do that? What proportion should I do? You know, this much of that, one day, two days, five minutes, 50 minutes, whatever. And the answer to all of that is yes. <laughs> So yes, of course, it's wonderful to keep 
to up a metta practice. And many people find leaving a retreat like this that it just effortlessly becomes the form that your practice takes to continue this sense of well-wishing. But when you do it as a daily practice, when you're back in your, your daily life, all of the guidelines that we've given you it can still be valuable, but you don't need to hold them so uh, tightly. Really be very creative in the practice. You know, you can do groups of people or, you know, I call it the group photograph of everyone you care about or who you're going to meet that day or sending it to difficult people, you know. Just include everyone, whatever feels right for you. And it can really be a lovely practice, especially if you uh, weave in all of the Brahma Viharas because as you've probably discovered during this week, they all really have a, a part to play in keeping our hearts open and in balance. And so whether you do all metta all the time, can't be bad, right? All metta all the time. Or, you know, begin a sitting with five or ten minutes of metta and do the rest mindfulness or end with metta. Believe me, it doesn't really matter. But something, doing something matters. That's what's really important. So what I like to say is make a commitment to doing what works. Instead of, you know, charging out of here with this banner flying high, I'm going to sit every day for an hour and, you know, radiate metta all over the world. And in about three days, you're like, well, that didn't work. I you know, give up on that. Um, do, what, do what works. You know, maybe for you, you look at your schedule and four times a week is what you can manage or every day for 20 minutes. But do whatever works and make a commitment to that. And I basically have a commitment to sit every day. And some days I can't because of different circumstances, travel or teaching or uh, whatever comes up in my life. But as soon as that whatever it is dissipates, I sit again and just start right there. So do what works and, and, and supports your practice, not to have it be a burden or an obligation because you will never create a daily practice out of thinking that you should. Or if you're a good Buddhist, you would. Or if you, you know, were the, good, the person that people think you are, you would. It's got to come out of some real sense that, it, that it's a value, that you feel a benefit. And I don't mean in the moment. You know, if I only sat because every sitting I did at home I felt was valuable and worthwhile, I, I would have given up a long time ago. Because often, you know, I just sit there and I have a few breaths and then I'm thinking or I'm worrying about something or I'm planning a Dharma talk or whatever. But what it re represents to me is this intention towards connection or mindfulness or relaxation or ease. And that's what I value and that's what I keep um, coming back to. So, you know, we'll go through our ups and downs with this. But to create the intention and to find what you can do to support that, that's what will help us actually continue and deepen this practice. So, you know, be creative in this. Metta is a wonderful practice to do while you're driving or standing in line or just at odd times during the day that the mind turns in that direction. It can just really help keep us uh, connected and open. Um, and there was something else I was going to say. Oh, I guess I'll say, too, a number of people have asked about doing longer meta retreats. And it's true that we don't um, advertise any, or we don't hold any formal long meta retreats here. But I've never sat a meta retreat. 
I've done all my practice at IMS during their long retreat in the fall, where it's basically a Vipassana retreat, but I would choose to do Metta or the other Brahma Viharas, and I get my instructions in the interviews. So we do that here at the month, long, the month or two-month retreat, February, March. You can do it um, at IMS in the fall. So there are places if you want to have an extended period of this practice, and particularly if you want to deepen the concentration aspect, which does take time. The week we've had is a very small amount of time to even enter into that territory. So a longer period to really cultivate this practice is very powerful, and it's what all of us have done to really uh, deepen our practice and understanding of this beautiful uh, development of metta and jhana concentration. So that's what I want today. Thank you. Guy was going to do that. No, Spirit Rock, Donna. You were going to do So her comment was that she'd kind of thought of each of the phrases as very separate, distinct entities, but just realized how they actually blend and support each other and that, you know, to be happy, there has to be a degree of ease or safety or whatever that they really are necessary. So the clacking, that thing that, I don't know what it's called, you know, where it flaps like this down, that's what you're talking about. You know, the other image that's often given is the cascading pools that as each fills, it fills the other and there's that sense of interconnection. Yes, thank you. Yeah, what's, uh, what's INS, and if it's not a secret and you can share it, you mentioned uh, <laughs> yesterday uh, that there were 10 beings, categories of beings. Uh-huh. And so we've done four, and what are the other six? Okay, so it's IMS, Insight Meditation Society. Sorry, I've you know, been the, so familiar with it, I forget that other people might know. It's our sister center in Massachusetts. It's a wonderful place to practice. Um, actually, we have our Massachusetts representative over there. She's probably going to be shy. That uh, That's Eowyn, who used to work there, and she teaches yoga there, and it's been wonderful to have her and her husband, who's the kitchen manager, visiting us for this week. It's a great practice center, and they do a long... They do two meta retreats a year, just like we do, and a long practice period in the fall. And it's in a tiny town called Bar- Barry, in the center of nowhere in Massachusetts. <laughs> but it's very lovely. 
And the thing about the categories, actually 12 categories, and they're different. It's actually the extension of the all beings category. So it's not, there's these five that we've done, and the last one being all beings. This takes all beings and spreads it out. So uh, I'll try to remember, all females, all male, no, sorry, all beings, all living beings, all those in existence. I always forget the last two, all those, all breathing beings all individuals. It's a funny group of five. And then the group of seven is all females, all males, all enlightened beings, all unenlightened beings, all those in the heavenly realms or in states of happiness, human beings, and those in states of suffering. So you do the 12 to the 10 directions, all four phrases. For, it takes about an hour and a, took me about an hour and a half to go through all that. But that's if you do an extended period of metta practice. And the, it, many of these retreats in the evening, we would chant the metta chant, Imaya, Dhammanu, Dhamma, Patipatiya. If you look at that chant, that list is in there, and that's where we take it from. So it's a traditional practice. The question is about the origin of the term bodhicitta. I mentioned it in the talk last night. Um, it's something we're borrowing from the Mahayana lineages. I mean, one of the interesting things about Buddhism coming to the West is all the lineages are coming together, and they haven't talked to each other in Asia for about 1,500 years. <laughs> and you'll find that out if you talk to a Tibetan teacher, they won't understand what we do here, and if you talk to a Theravadan teacher, they won't understand what the Tibetans or the Zen people are practicing. But in the West, they're all coming together. And most Western practitioners, as I understand it, practice in more than one tradition. So I'm just curious, how many of you have practiced in traditions other than Theravada? Yeah. So that's, that's really common. And as we meet and mingle, uh, the Vipassana tradition is the most likely to borrow. Because we're kind of the most uh, free form. You notice we don't have much Asian influence in terms of ritual or really a lot of language. We read Rumi and Ryokan and Mary Oliver. and So we've got a lot of room to steal and borrow. And uh, a lot of us find, you know, a lot of the teachers from other traditions very inspiring. Suzuki Roshi, you may hear us quote him. Dalai Lama is a big influence for us. And he's the one who's talked a lot about this factor of bodhicitta, the wish to awaken for the benefit of all beings. So we borrow rather freely. But I really appreciate your asking what the source is, because I think that's important to understand. This term bodhicitta does not appear in the Theravadan texts, in the Pali Canon, but it's implicit in the life story of the Buddha, because the Buddha himself went through the bodhisattva journey over many, many lifetimes in order to awaken, in order to benefit all beings. So it's there in the biography, but it's not named in quite the same way.
But there are people doing bodhisattva practices in very Theravadan countries, aren't there, in Burma? It's not that it doesn't exist. Kamala, why don't you, do you speak to me? I don't know much, but it's more in the north. Yeah, yeah. in the north of Burma, there are people doing bodhisattva, you know, really taking on that as a practice in Theravada countries. So, you know, there's, there's a common root, or it's not that, you know, it doesn't exist in this tradition. There, there are regular um, days throughout the year that do mark the Buddhist calendar. In um, our tradition, in Buddhist countries, they're not marked by days of the week, but by phases of the moon. So on the um, first and 15th day, these are the sort of central days of observance, and monks will come together and chant long periods of chanting on those days that makes the bottom very sore. I can attest from experience. And then... Um, <laughs> On the other phases of the moon days, there are lesser observances, and all four of the phases of the moon day is a time when lay people are invited to come to the temple or the monastery or the nunnery and practice with uh, the monks and nuns and take the observance of eight precepts, which means fasting after noon and not going for entertainments. So this happens all through the year. It happens basically four times a month. Then the big holidays that are celebrated... The main one is called Vesak, V-E-S-A-K, and that is said to mark the Buddha's birth, the Buddha's enlightenment, and his death. Same, supposed to have happened all on the full moon of May, which makes it very convenient. You know? <laughs> For those of us who don't really like rituals, we get to do it all in one day. Um, then the other kind of big events in the Buddhist calendar are the entrance into the rains retreat for the monks and nuns, uh, it usually happens about the middle of July. And that day of entrance is a big ceremony at the temples, and lay people are invited to come and participate. And then the ending of the rains retreat, three months of uh, usually silent practice, uh, is a big celebration also, kind of like you're going to celebrate getting out of here today. <laughs> the monks and nuns celebrate getting out of three months of intensive retreat. And then there's usually a ceremony called katina, where lay people come and offer robes and medicine and gifts to the temple. So those are the main ones that I know of in in our tradition. But also on the full moon night, there's usually a a little more of a ceremony, like our local monastery of Bayagiri. Every full moon night, they sit up all night and do chanting and puja, and, and then the next day is kind of a rest day, so they really do track it by the moon and make those celebrations. 
This is the, no, no, no. It's not. Um, this is a problem in in Buddhism, um, especially in coming to the West, because the relationship of the sexes in Asia has has not been equal, and a lot of the texts were written by celibate monks who spent their whole lifetimes avoiding any contact with women. So there is a there is a strain of definitely avoidance from the Asian monastic community of contact with women because the factor of sensual desire is one of the main things that tends to pull monks out of a monastic and celibate commitment and practice. So this is one of the problems, actually, that Buddhism is finding in coming to the West, that some of these Asian ways of thinking are traveling over. As it meets Western culture, where there's a much more Uh, egalitarian quality, then we have to do something to drop these practices. And I'll give you an example within our tradition. There is a full ordination for men available in our tradition, taking the full bhikkhu ordination with 227 precepts. The equivalent ordination for women has not been available because that order, called the Order of Bhikkhunis, died out somewhere around 1200 uh, AD. And it takes five bhikkhunis to ordain a new bhikkhuni. So once it died out, the tradition in Asia felt there wasn't a way to resurrect it. But uh, through some creative thinking, people have found uh, lineages in China that carried the same code of discipline, the same vinaya, and have used bhikkhunis who still exist in that lineage to uh, restore the order in Theravadan countries, so that's being restored in Sri Lanka, for example. It's been restored in Sri Lanka. So there are now bhikkhunis practicing in Sri Lanka so that uh, monks and nuns can really start to coexist on an equal, uh, more or less equal plane. But it is a problem from the Asian heritage. And in the West, it's one of the things that will have to change before Buddhism can uh, fully root in this culture. Oh, yeah. There's an ordination, there's a bhikkhuni ordination happening here at Spirit Rock on October 17th for uh, a number of women in the, uh, mostly the Thai tradition, who have been practicing as nuns with a lesser, lesser number of precepts in the Thai tradition and uh, wish to take, now that it's becoming more widely available, the full ordination of a bhikkhuni lineage, and we're going to host that here because we want to, we really want to support the equalizing efforts uh, for women. And just as another aside, you notice there are three statues in this hall. One of them is male and two of them are female. So Spirit Rock has a very conscious intention to make uh, women feel at home 
here. And we've personally and all the teachers about equal numbers of men and women, and we always try to have a balance on our teaching teams and love and respect my female colleagues as much as my males. So I feel practically we're in, we're in a really good place in our form of Buddhism today, but some other lineages may have some catching up to do. One, one thing besides that particular question that I find helpful is um, <clears throat> take the wisdom that really resonates with you and whatever doesn't, just just put it on hold. If that's, because the, the Buddha was saying, really don't, don't look outside of yourself for the ultimate authority. Just see, does this lead to suffering? Does this lead to happiness? And it's, a, it's an ongoing internal investigation of, of how the truth resonates for you. The thing that helps me when I read texts like that is I try to understand the context of the culture that it's in. And during that time, that's how things were. And uh, it's, we're in a great time of change around all that now. In the uh, lineage that I've been uh, practicing in and studying in, and also I ordained in twice as a nun, uh, it was really interesting. One of the times I ordained, uh, the teacher that I practice with Upandita is known to be a very strict teacher. And he really follows the rules of how it is in Burma, the cultural rules. But the one time I ordained as a nun, I think it was the first time. I'm a little shy to say this, though, Um, so I'm a little shaky. Um, His monks came to me the evening before the closing and said, um, tomorrow you shall give the talk. And I said, it's 10 o'clock, you know. And they said, well, uh, the Sayadawji says, you shall stay up this night and make your talk. So I thought, this is really unusual because a, wom- a woman doesn't speak in front of a group of bhikkhus. Usually in Burma, it's like that. So I stayed up and made the talk. I was supposed to give it at 4 in the morning so that the teacher could look at it and then um, that I could go up the next day. And I didn't know how I was going to be told to do that. In Burma, just to show you how it is so culturally there still, all the monks sit in the front. There are rows of monks in the front. And in back of that are the rows of men, laymen. And in back of that are the rows of um, nuns, and in back of that are the, low, uh, the rows of lay women. And of course, my teachers have always said, anyone can be enlightened. You, you don't have to be, you know, in any particular, never mind that the men, the, the monastic men are in front. So um, it was time to give the talk. And uh, so they called me from the back from, with my monastic name. And they said, come right up here. And I sat right in front of the, of the bhikkhus, of the monks. And it was like, 
I didn't know. It was kind of a little shocking to me. But that was a step that Upandita made that I, from my understanding, had never been done before. Like a woman and a nun would sit in front like that. The nuns and the women had smiles on their faces from here to here. And there were some monks that I knew there that... um, that were really smiling, that were really happy. And the, even the older monks, the older Burmese monks. So I just felt, you know, there, there are these changes that people are trying to make culturally, too. Um, and, you know, they're trying to do it in a way that's, that isn't going to cause some big, big ripples. So I, I just see that and appreciate that so much. through the schedule. I wanted to say just a few words about uh, Spirit Rock as an organization to let you know that it really uh, runs on this practice of generosity that we've been talking about over the last few days and receives many, many generous donations every year, both in terms of uh, money but also in terms of people's efforts and volunteer time. We have an annual recognition dinner for the volunteers and there must be 120 people who are invited to that. So people are working in the the offices, in the bookstore, in uh, the grounds, doing all the things that we we would ordinarily need to pay staff to do. So that's really a huge part of what goes on here. Um, People also contribute financially to a huge degree. I think something like a a quarter to a third of our operating income comes from donations, which is pretty amazing. It means that the rate that we would all have to pay to sit here would be about uh, maybe one and a half or one and three quarters times as much if it weren't for the donations that come in to support us. So this is really uh, just a part of the way churches have always operated in this country. It's certainly the way monasteries and temples and nunneries operate in Asia. And we want to make sure it's a part of how Spirit Rock operates. So to let you know about that, We hope that you can consider this your spiritual home. And we hope that as your relation grows and you feel feel close and comfortable here, you'll also want to contribute and support and make this opportunity available for others. So we thank any consideration you'd like to give to that. And coming up, we do have one big need. This building project that the supervisors approved just on Tuesday, we would like to start creating those buildings. It's basically to replace, you all know the lower community hall where you met yesterday? Nice building, huh? (laughs) It's 20 years old. It's just eight trailers jammed together. Um, We've had a lot of problems patching it up over the years. We want to replace it. I don't know if you noticed the other trailers in the meadows. That's where the staff work. One of our staff told me he comes to work in the morning and has to brush the uh, mouse droppings off his computer before he can... (laughs) start the day. So those buildings are definitely old and kind of in the way. And then where the staff live is also basically in temporary buildings and trailers. So our building plans that got approved are to replace all those temporary buildings with new permanent buildings. And the meditation hall will look something like this. So I just think, wow, what a beautiful offering we'll be able to make in time to the community who come here for classes and day-longs Instead of sitting with the ceiling a few feet over your head, 
they'll be held in a space like this with beautiful windows open on, onto these hills and trees. So that is going to be a major focus for our fundraising efforts over the next three years. And Sylvia Borstein is going to kick it off in early August with a launch of a program called Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. And she's going to ask as many people who are inspired to join to contribute basically a dollar a day for three years toward this program. And that would be $1,000 per person. And if we get thousands of people to contribute in that way, then we'll have millions, the way the math works. <laughs> so that's our hope. And we're, up, we're also, of course, going to need other gifts as well. So I just wanted to plant that seed invite you to keep it in mind if it's a program you'd like to participate in. Uh, The generosity is just part of the cycle of things here at Spirit Rock. And keep an eye out for the notices, and we just invite and be really grateful for your participation. Thank you. Is there a question? Yes. Yes. Is it possible to donate to the scholarship fund? It is possible to donate to the scholarship fund directly. And if you'd like to do that, I think there's an online link. There's a link called giving and under the giving page I think there's a link to scholarship and that's always really appreciated also because that directly makes this kind of experience available to more people. Thank you. Every year we give about $250,000 in scholarships for retreats and also programs in the lower hall. So we try to make the teachings available to those who want to come practice and make that financial assistance possible for people. So I think Kamal is going to close us. So we'll end with some metta practice what we started with and continued through this time together. And also sharing of the merit. So finding that place of balance again. Balance of our bodies. Balance of the mind and the heart together. Bringing our attention to the heart center. And taking a little few moments to practice some forgiveness. And I'd like to be a voice for all of us, for each one of you, for all of us as teachers, staff, and the cooks. Just taking a few moments to reflect on the possibility that there may have been some beings that we've hurt or harmed in some way through our words or our deeds, intentionally or unintentionally. And just in our own ways, Asking for forgiveness. Please forgive me 
for hurting you. We know how hard it is to be a human being, how impossible it is to be perfect. And then remembering those beings who may have caused us harm or hurt here in this retreat, intentionally or unintentionally, through what was said or done or not said or done. And as much as we can, offering our forgiveness. And last but not least, forgiving ourselves for the ways in which we've not felt good enough, ways in which we've hurt ourselves through our habit patterns. Intentionally or unintentionally, forgiving ourselves for even not being able to forgive right now. As much as we can, opening our hearts to ourselves again. So as much as I can, I forgive myself. As much as I can, I open my heart to myself once again. And then from there, let's see if we can remember all of those who have benefited us. Let's start there. All of those who have supported us in being here, our family members, our co-workers and our friends, all of the teachers, not just here but in our lives, our elders, benefactors, the young ones that give us so much joy. Let them be in front of us or around us somehow in our mind's eye, in our heart center, just beaming their support in whatever way they've done it. Maybe they don't exactly say it in a way that we might love to hear it, but we know somehow that we're cared for, that we're valued, even in little ways. So allowing ourselves to acknowledge that to open our hearts, to receive it. And then in our own mind, heart way, putting our hands together and offering gratitude to all of them 
or to however many there are for their support and love, however they express it in their own unique ways. Thanking, offering metta to them. May you know the deepest fulfillment of your life spiritual and human fulfillment. May your goodness always protect you. And now let's come back to ourselves, seeing if we can feel our own goodness. Maybe it helped that somehow it was acknowledged or we could acknowledge it from others. They're seeing our goodness. So can we see it in ourselves? The very fact that we're here, so much determination, patience, care for ourselves, many extraordinary qualities of a human being have been brought out and developed, pointed out. Reflecting on our strengths, our goodness, our compassion. And offering ourselves the metta of really acknowledging that in ourselves. May I remember this goodness. May it give me strength in my life to carry that forth, to shine forth towards others. May this be the safety and protection that I can come back to in my own heart. May my body be healthy and strong, carrying me on this path and helping others along the way. May I be at ease with the changing conditions of my life. And now offering that out, just as we value all of those qualities in ourselves, turning it towards everyone here in the hall and those yogis who are on the land, not with us right now, the staff and the cooks, all of those who have served us. Just as I wish to be safe and protected, may you all be safe and protected on your journey home, your journey to your heart home inside of you, beaming that out as much as you can, or letting it softly shine. May love and wisdom be your constant companions, just as I wish this for myself. 
I wish this for all of you. Goodwill. Friendship. Connection. And then let's bring into this group all of those that we may have felt closed down towards all of the ones we may have had difficulty with, giving ourselves permission to leave anyone out of the orbit that we don't feel safe around. Just as I wish to be safe and protected, may all of you be safe and protected. May we all be healthy and strong. May we learn to care for each other unconditionally. And may we now share the merit, which is the beneficial energy of all of that goodness that we've developed here, the strengths of heart, that we've come to know maybe opened up a little too or maybe a lot. May we share the merit of all of this beneficial energy with each other, with all of our family, loved ones, even those who have passed away. and with all beings everywhere, all of the benefactors in the world, all of the leaders of the world. All of the elders, that they may continue to guide us in ways that bring harmony and peace to our world. and to all of the young ones. May you be strong and healthy in your mind and heart and body. May the truth of life really touch you. May you have the strength to carry on and to bring the coming generations truth and love. By the sharing of this merit, may all beings be benefited. May all beings know peace and the causes of peace, happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be liberated at the earliest possible time. you for the honor you've given us to serve you and to learn from you also. Anything else? Okay.
Packing up the stuff. So remember, uh, take everything with you, and uh, you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.